1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, two-time National Book Award winning author, Jesmyn Ward, on her latest novel, Sing Unburied Sing, and her essay collection, The Fire This Time. Jasmine Ward received her MFA from the University of Michigan and is currently an Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Tulane University. She is the author of the novels Where the Line Bleeds and Salvage the Bones, which won the 2011 National Book Award. She is also the editor of the anthology The Fire This Time, which we're going to talk about a little later, and the author of the memoir Mem We Reaped*, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. In 2016, the American Academy of Arts and Letters selected Ward for the Strauss Living Award, We're going to be talking today about Jasmine's latest novel, which is Sing Unburied Sing, which also won the National Book Award, making Jasmine the only woman to have won it twice. And this very week that we're recording, it's also been shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Jasmine, welcome to Little Atoms.
2: It's good to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Would you describe for us what Sing Unburied Sing is about?
2: So I guess the simplest way to tell you what Sing Unburied Sing is about is it's a cross between a road uh, trip and a ghost story. Um, I didn't intend for it to be a cross of those two things. When I first began the project, I thought that it would just be a novel about a road trip because in part, because I was inspired by William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. And I thought it might be interesting to, you know, to follow a a young man, a a 13-year-old mixed race or black boy through the modern South on a road trip like that, right, where he would sort of wrestle with the, you know, history and identity um, uh, in the American South in a very intimate way because he's mixed race. And then five chapters in the book, I was researching Parchment Prison because I I knew that the characters were heading to Parchment Prison at the beginning of the book, but I knew nothing about it, so I had to you know read up on it and research. And then when I figured out that kids as young as 12 were charged with petty crimes, crimes that really shouldn't even be crimes like loitering, and then sent to Parchment Prison basically to be re-enslaved, I knew that I had to write about a character like that a young man like that so then I figured out it was a ghost story too
1: we'll talk about Richie that Mm -hmm. third character Mm -hmm. later on Jojo is the character you referred to to begin with who's the teenage boy Mm -hmm. there's a second narrator as well Leone his mother Mm -hmm. we'll talk about those two first but tell us about why you like that structure of writing with the three different narrators
2: Actually when I began working on the first draft of the book, or when I wrote the first draft of the book, there were only two narrators. So there was only Jojo and Leone, right? And each of those characters, you know, told their stories in alternate chapters, right? In some ways, I guess you could count Pop, who is Jojo's grandfather and Leone's father, as a third narrator from the very beginning because in Jojo's chapters, There are certain moments where he will remember a Mm -hmm. story, recall this story that Pop told him about his time in Parchment when he was younger, right? And those uh, moments, in those moments, Pop tells us the story of that time in his life in his own voice. So in a way, there is a third narrator there already. But in in the first draft, and then I would say in probably the first 10 revisions, there were only the two main voices, right, JoJo's and Leone's, And I didn't write any chapters from Richie's perspective. Uh, I think part of the reason that that happened was because I was nervous about doing so, because I knew I'd have to construct an entire world, right, the world of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And it would have to make sense, and it would have to be, you know, strange. And, and I couldn't rely on, I guess, what I knew of life to write that those sections I was nervous and I didn't write Richie's sections until my editor Catherine Belden asked me if I had ever thought about writing some sections you know from Richie's point of view and then I wrote a couple sections from Richie's point of view and it actually ended up working rather well. I tend to be more comfortable telling stories from different first-person viewpoints You know, my first novel was written from a third-person point of view, and then every novel that I've written after that, you know, I've written two um, since, they've all been in first person. All the short stories that I've written, you know, since I wrote my first novel, they've all been written in the first-person point of view. Something about my writing process takes very well to that perspective. I feel more comfortable. It's almost as if I can shed myself when I'm writing from the first-person perspective and I'm not so self-conscious and not so self-aware that all the choices are mine. You know, I guess when I write from the first-person point of view, it feels like the choices are the characters. Mm -hmm. And it's easier for the characters to assume a life of their own in my imagination if I'm writing from their perspective. That makes sense.
1: Tell us about the family then, because we've talked about Jojo, Leone is his mum, but you mentioned Pop, Mm -hmm. and there's also Mama, or Mm -hmm. Mama, Mm -hmm. who is his grandmother. Mm -hmm. So Jojo and his sister Kayla, his younger sister Mm -hmm. Kayla, they call their grandparents Pop and Mama and his mm -hmm. mother Leone. Tell Mm -hmm. me about that family dynamic.
2: Well, basically, uh, Jojo, is, he's 13 when the novel begins. Um, it's actually his birthday in the first chapter of the novel. But anyhow, his sister, Kayla, is two, I think, at the beginning of the novel. And they live with their maternal grandparents. So their maternal grandparents are Pop and Ma'am. Leone is their mother. She struggles with addiction. Her drug of choice is meth, although she does use other drugs as well. So because she struggles with addiction, she neglects them in some respects. Sometimes she can be really abusive to them uh, emotionally and physically. Uh, So she's she's not a good parent. And, you know, the children, I mean, they're so young that they need someone to take care of them. So I think that Pop and and Ma'am stepped into the void and decided to... You know, I mean, they really had no choice, right? They basically took in the children as their own, and they took care of them. So JoJo really looks to pop as a model, right? I mean, because that's his closest model, right? So as he's coming of age and he's trying to figure out, like, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a black man, what it means to be a black man in the American South, I think he looks to pop. In order to figure that out, and doesn't really look towards like his father, right, Michael, who is in parchment at the beginning of the novel, or look to his paternal grandfather, his name is Big Joseph, as a model either. Um, and then his grandmother, unfortunately, throughout the novel, is um, is suffering from cancer uh, and is basically on her deathbed. But yet, she still she still mothers him. You know, she still. Loves him. She does what she can for him, you know, to sort of shore him up so that when she is no longer there, so that he won't flounder, perhaps in the way that Leone has floundered throughout the novel.
1: The novel is set in a place, a fictional town, Bois Savage, mm-hmm. which you've written about before. Mm-hmm. You've you've used previously. Tell me about this area. So it's on the Mississippi coast. Mm-hmm. There's lots of all of the characters have that sort of affinity with the water, mm-hmm. and salt water, mm-hmm. the delta. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about why you've used this place again.
2: That's interesting. I think that I use Bois Sauvage because it's a fictional version of the place where I'm from. Like my hometown is this little town on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi called DeLisle, and uh, much about Bois Sauvage reminds me of DeLisle. You know, so. It's very small. there are not many people that live there. Most of the families that live there and the people that live there, like those families have lived there for generations, right And um, it's a poor area, right? I mean a lot of these families have uh, you know ha- have inherited poverty and then unfortunately, you know, passed it along to their children. It's a place where there aren't a lot of opportunities. so it's not hard to understand why it's so easy for Leone to develop an addiction. Unfortunately, where I'm from in Delille and I think this applies for Bois Sauvage too, there have been like multiple waves of addiction, right? So in the in the throughout the nineteen eighties and into the mid nineties to the end of the nineteen nineties, there was the crack cocaine epidemic, right? And that, that hit the community in the town really hard, right? And you had lots of people who were struggling with addiction. And then as, I don't know, they I guess these things move in waves, right? And so in the early 2000s, I was already reading about like the emergence of meth in, in rural America and how that was becoming a drug of choice. But I've really only seen meth emerge as basically one of the few drugs that you can get. And I've seen people transition from crack addiction and coke addiction to meth addiction, in the past 10 years, I guess. So, I mean, it's a place of it's a beautiful place. It is. You know, one of the reasons why characters, you know, as they're moving through the world and experiencing the world that they constantly use simile and metaphor that have to do with water uh, or or animals and or fish or, you know, other animals that that live in a marine environment is because because that refl- is reflective of the landscape that they live in, right? There are lots of, um, you know, bayous, and there's the marsh, and there's the bay, and then there's the Gulf of Mexico, right? So they're surrounded by water, really. And it's very important to me in most of the books that I write that the character's experience drives their perception, right, and informs their perception. And I, I, you know, I return to this place because I love this place, because there's beauty there. But there's also, you know, pain there and, and and people struggle. And I feel like the people that I write about are people I don't I don't know if I've necessarily seen them in literature yet. And so I want to write about them and I want to um tell their stories and I want to amplify their voices because I think that often the kind of people that I am from, you know, that you know, the kind of people that are in my family and the kind of people that are in my community that they are not accorded humanity in the larger conversation, you know, the conversation that others have about them. I saw this a lot, especially after Hurricane Katrina, right, when I was sort of watching the news and, and seeing what people were saying about, you know, because that's where I'm from, you know, about people in New Orleans who didn't evacuate or people on the Mississippi Gulf Coast or just on the Gulf Coast in general, the Alabama coast, the Florida coast that didn't evacuate. Their humanity was never was never acknowledged in that conversation. And um, and so I just, I want to push back against that in my work.
1: You mentioned the central journey in the book is this drive mm-hmm. from the coast up to Parchment Farm mm-hmm. to pick up Michael, who's being released. This is obviously, a, you know, it's a big symbolic journey in the book. Mm-hmm. And this discussion at the beginning of whether or not they should take the children mm-hmm. on the journey mm-hmm. went on Google Maps. And this is basically a four-hour drive mm-hmm. or something in in reality. And it, and it sort of made me think about the, I guess the limited horizons of people who live in poverty, who live this life, Mm -hmm. that such a thing would be such a big deal. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, you know, that's one of the reasons that I was so frustrated after Hurricane Katrina when I heard people saying, you know, I don't understand why people who lived in the path of the storm didn't automatically leave, right? One of the reasons that, you know, the people, you know, who live in communities along the coast, one of the reasons that they don't leave is because they're poor, One, they're poor. Two, you know, they live in communities where the families are very large, right? So they're very large extended families. If I just count my maternal grandmother's family, there are over 200 of us, right? That's just a fourth of my family. And so how do you move 200 people (laughs) when a storm is coming? You can't do it. Even if you had money, it would be difficult to do. You know, so people have adapted. And so, I mean, I I guess that was one of the things that I wanted to write around or about in Sing and Buried Sing, right, when the characters are talking about, you know, how difficult this journey is and whether or not they should take the children, because it's not easy for Leone to do what she does and to put them on the road. And then there's also the danger that something might go wrong with their car, right? So what happens when you're poor and you're taking a two-hour, three-hour, four-hour journey and something happens to your car and it doesn't want to start or you get a flat or, you know, something happened, your alternator breaks or something, right? And then you're stranded where you are. And then things become even more sort of desperate, right? Uh, That didn't happen to them necessarily in the novel. Um, But I think that they still uh, encounter, you know, several obstacles that are specific, I think, to people of color, but also to people who are just poor,
1: We'll talk about the prison in a moment, but before we do, on the way back from the prison, mm-hmm. there's an incident that happens. They're pulled over by the police mm-hmm. and, and something happens that you know, resonates mm-hmm. very highly with mm-hmm. things we're seeing constantly on, yes. on the news mm-hmm. in America today.
2: I knew from the very beginning of the first draft that it would only be natural for them to encounter the police and be stopped by the police because of who they are. Right? You know, it's well known where I'm from <laughs> in the States and in the South that driving while black is a real thing and that a police officer will stop you randomly if you are a person of color and if you are driving a car and they don't necessarily need a reason. They will make up a reason. You know, when you ask, would you, you know, so can I ask what I'm, why are you stopping me? They'll say something, right? You know, you didn't use your turn signal or, you know, you were swerving or, you know, they'll just make up something that often is not, (laughs) is not necessarily true. So yeah, I mean, the, the characters are stopped by a police officer and there's this moment where you teeter on the brink of disaster and I think that's a very tense moment for the reader because we're familiar with that narrative you know we're familiar with that encounter where black people both men and women are subject to horrific violence in moments like that and that's whether they lose their lives or I mean talk about like (laughs) <laughs> talk about mental trauma right so yeah so there's that moment in the story where where that happens and you know I don't want to give anything away but um the characters do not emerge unscathed from that encounter and I felt like I had to write about an encounter like that because if I choose to write about the characters that I write about who are poor who are dis- and disenfranchised in the United States of America then I have to be honest about the circumstances of their lives And that definitely is a facet, you know, of their experience.
0: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. Okay. <laughs>
1: you listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jesmyn Ward. We're talking about her novel Sing, Unburied Sing. And Jesmyn, I said I wanted to talk about Parchman Farm for a bit, tell us a bit more about what it is historically. Mm-hmm. And let's also bring in then Richie, that third narrator that, that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So Richie is a boy who was in Parchman... Mm-hmm. As a young boy, mm-hmm. a long time ago, basically, yes. Richie is no longer alive, we yes. can say. Yes,
2: yes. He was in Parchman in the 1940s. And in that time, it was common for young black boys to be charged with crimes that you know weren't really crimes. And then it was common for them to be sent to Parchman Prison Farm, where they were, in essence, re-enslaved. Parchman Prison Farm was established in the early 1900s. It was the Mississippi State Prison, basically. It seemed like when you look at the history of that place and you look at the decisions that were made when the prison was established and when they began to send inmates there, it seems like the people in power in the law, the people who wrote the laws, changed the laws specifically so that more black people, men and women, but mostly men, would break them. So then they would have cause to send those people to Parchment Prison Farm. And I'm sure it's something, you know, in the same way that I'm talking about that police officers nowadays will you and accuse you of things that you either did not do or, you know, very just small infractions. I'm pretty sure that in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s that they did much of the same thing, right? So this is how they can sort of walk up to you and say, oh, you're loitering and you're under arrest, Right. And so, anyhow, they um, basically sent as many black men there as they could. And in the beginning years of the of the prison, they rented those men out to industrial barons in the region, right? So those men laid railroad tracks and cleared vast, you know, vast areas of forests, right, for planting or for building or whatever, right, whatever these industrial barons wanted them to do. And then, after a, you know, maybe like a decade or so, then they decided to make parchment Prison into a farm. So it basically became a plantation, right? Because the inmates had to work in the fields, you know, like slaves. People in power at the prison, the warden, they decided to basically recast overseers as sergeants. Um, so these were men who rode around on horses, who patrolled the fields with guns and made sure that the gunmen kept working. And then that's what they called. they called them gunmen. They called the inmates gunmen as they worked in the fields because they labored under the eyes of the trusty shooters. Now the trusty shooters were inmates who were handpicked by the sergeants and by the people in power at the prison to guard the other inmates, so to aid the sergeant/slash overseer in the fields and guard the other inmates to make sure that they don't try to escape. And these inmates were given guns, and they were set at the sides of the fields, and they were encouraged to kill any inmate who attempted to escape. And if they killed an inmate who was attempting to escape, if they killed a, a gunman who was attempting to escape, then they were given their freedom. Um, you know, the inmates were the gunmen were tortured; they were whipped. With Black Betty, I mean, they were reenslaved, and and it's a real place. Like I said, people are surprised to find out that it's a real place, but
1: well, this very idea that you know, once upon a time, you know, in the twentieth century, mm-hmm. black people were were rounded up for ostensibly mm-hmm. petty crimes yes. and put to work. Mm-hmm for basically, you know, financial gain in these in these systems. I mean, it's not too flippant to say that's basically what the exact same thing is happening now in the prisons in the South.
2: Yes, yes, because, it, you know, because it is, I mean, they're not necessarily working in the fields, but they are definitely working. And the laws are, um, are definitely, uh, you know, constructed and specifically worded so that So so that the penalties are higher for African Americans and people of colour than they are for others.
1: So I mentioned Richie and most of the family, so you know, to greater or lesser degrees, Mama, Jojo, Mm -hmm. Mm Leone and then Kayla all can somehow see or hear or communicate. Mm with the dead tell Mm -hmm. me about using those this is again it's a place that you've written about a town that you've written about before Mm -hmm. in a sort of you know more socially Mm -hmm. social realist way Mm -hmm. this story is also a a socially realist way but it's Mm -hmm. got supernatural elements yes tell me about combining those two
2: um i've wanted to explore the supernatural in my work and i know that it's probably not proper of me to use the term magical realism but but that's, that, that's a of, that's a, a,
1: a description that people will
2: recognize., yes, that's what I it mean, feels like. I've wanted to explore that in my work for a long time. I just I didn't feel uh, I didn't feel equipped to in a way. I don't know, and i I didn't know whether readers would be open to that in my work. And so I think that I was a little little afraid to try it. And um, was actually a poet. Her name is uh, Nikki Finney, and she won the National Book Award in Poetry the year that I won the National Book Award for fiction for Salvage the Bones in 2011. Anyhow, we were friends, and I remember she was talking about magical realism in her own work and being able to sort of, you know, access the supernatural and explore that in your work. She was talking about that in relationship to her own work, and I remember saying to her, I wish I could do that. And she said, well, you can do that. You do do that, you know, and it was as if, you know, we had that conversation and she was giving me permission, I guess. I suppose I needed someone to give me that permission because then when I began seeing Unburied Sing, I thought, well, I'm going to, you know, I will try. You know, let's see what happens if I open myself up to the possibility of magic and wonder and, you know, things beyond the known in this world that I write about. And, uh, and so in the beginning of the first rough draft, Given didn't exist. Uh, Leone was actually seeing, whenever she would get high from meth, she would see a phantom of Michael, her boyfriend, Paramore, who is in Parchman Prison. And she would think that he was real. And then from the very beginning, Jojo, he's around animals all the time, right? Because his pop keeps something of a farm, basically, or he keeps animals. And Jojo would look at those animals, and he would perceive them talking to him or communicating to him. He would understand them, right? And so those two um, those two things were evident from the very beginning, right? So that's how I sort of entered the world of uh, magic and, like, magical realism and the supernatural in my work, And then, like I said, I was researching parchment, and then suddenly I realized I was taking a step further, right, (laughs) into um, the otherworldly because I wanted to give a character, I wanted to give Richie's character agency, and I wanted to give him presence, and I wanted him to be able to interact in the current moment with Jojo and with the other characters. And the only way I could accomplish that was by making him a ghost. So suddenly I'm stepping further into this supernatural realm and I'm writing a ghost story too. And then that made me create, in part, that contributed to me creating Given and making him into a ghost. So the journey I took wasn't necessarily one that I expected to take, but I'm glad that that's how it turned out.
1: I just want to leave "Sing" on "Buried Sing" for a minute. I'll get you to to read a little bit before we finish. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to talk about this essay collection, "The Fire This Time," mm-hmm. which is also being published in the UK here for the first time. Um, this is it's a response, satay, you know, mm-hmm. to "Distance of Years" to James Baldwin's "The Fire Next Time." Mm-hmm. The book is dedicated to Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. Tell me how it came about.
2: So I, um, I think it all began with Trayvon. I've written a memoir, <laughs> right, about my brother and about four other young men who were either members of my family or friends that I, who I grew up with, right? And they all died, right? So I wrote this memoir, right? That was about me and my family, but also about them. So I I wrote that memoir, which meant that I had personal experience with the fact that young black men and women or black men and women die early and senselessly in the United States often, and that they are denied justice in death, you know, after they have died. I was already familiar with that. But I think Trayvon Martin changed things for me. The thing that stands out most in my mind is the fact that he was a child. And in the larger conversation that was taking place on the news networks and in newspapers, you know, and in the entire country, that was never acknowledged. They never called him a child. You know, his childhood was never acknowledged. And then, in, in a way, he was like tried for his death, right? He was, there was victim blaming, right? That was happening. <laughs> you know, of course, then the natural outcome of that, the horrible natural outcome that was that, you know, Zimmerman was acquitted. He was never held accountable for murdering a child, you know, because of how old I am. Like, that was my sort of first experience as an adult with that phenomenon, even though it's not a new phenomenon, you like right? It's not, it's not new for a black person to be killed and then, and the murderer is not held accountable, right? There's nothing new about that. It's been happening since Amadou Diallo, right? Year, decades ago. So, anyhow, it was just, it was very uh, shocking to me. It was heartbreaking. And I felt like I was struggling with it and I was alone in that struggle. And so I turned to social media in order to find a community, right? Find a community of people who were being vocal about this situation, who were pushing back against the narrative that was being constructed around. Uh, Trayvon and I found that community there and you know so there are many writers who were there who were you know who were saying really important things about what was happening right who were making really important statements and they were changing the conversation around blackness in America and what it meant to be what it means to be black in America and I thought wouldn't it be great to be able to I mean Twitter is so ephemeral right I mean posts come and go and you know you can't even access like last week's posts unfortunately um, especially for most of the people that I was like sort of following and loving and so I thought wouldn't it be great if I had this on my bookshelf and if I could get these writers whose work I admire and really respect and and really respond to if I could get them to contribute to like a collection of uh, essays and later I figured out i wanted to include poetry too, but to a collection on race in, in, in America. And so that's how the project was really born. But it does really start, you know, my yearning for that project to come to fruition, I think really begins with Trayvon Martin.
1: Okay, should I get you to um, read us a bit of mm-hmm. Sing Unburied Sing? If you would just tell us what you're going to
2: read okay. before you um, just introduce it. I guess that it's probably easiest for me to read from the very beginning. So I'll read the epigraphs because the epigraphs are always important, right? They give you some direction into the book. And then I'll read the first page and sort of into the second page. Who are we looking for? Who are we looking for? It's Equiano we're looking for. Has he gone to the stream? Let him come back. Has he gone to the farm? Let him return. It's Equiano we're looking for. And that's a Qua chant about the disappearance of Equiano, an African boy, um, who I don't put this in the book, but presumably he's been stolen into slavery, right? The memory is a living thing, it too is in transit, but during its moment all that is remembered joins and lives, the old and the young, the past and the present, the living and the dead. From One Writer's Beginnings by Eudora Welty The gulf shines dull as lead, the coast of Texas glints like a metal rim. I have no home as long as summer bubbling to its head boils for that day when in the Lord God's name the coals of fire are heaped upon the head of all whose gospel is the whip and flame, age after age, the uninstructing dead. From the Gulf by Derek Walcott. Chapter 1, JoJo. I like to think I know what death is. I like to think that it's something I could look at straight. When Pop tell me he need my help and I see that black knife slid into the belt of his pants, I follow Pop out the house, try to keep my back straight, my shoulders even as a hanger. That's how Pop walks. I try to look like this is normal and born, so Pop will think I've earned these 13 years. So Pop will know I'm ready to pull what needs to be pulled. Separate innards from muscle, organs from cavities. I want Pop to know I can get bloody. Today's my birthday. I grab the door so it don't slam, ease it into the jam. I don't want Mam or Kayla to wake up with none of us in the house. Better for him to sleep. Better for my little sister Kayla to sleep. Because on nights when Leonie's out working, she wake up every hour, sit straight up in the bed, and scream. Better for Grandma Mam to sleep, because the chemo done dried her up and hollowed her out the way the sun and the air do water oaks. Pop weaves in and out of the trees, straight and slim and brown as a young pine. He spits in the dry red dirt, and the wind makes the trees wave. It's cold. This spring is stubborn. Most days it won't make way for warmth. The chill stays like water in a bad draining tub. I left my hoodie on the floor in Leonie's room where I sleep and my t-shirt is thin but I don't rub my arms. If I let the cold goad me, I know when I see the goat I'll flinch or frown when Pop cuts the throat and Pop being Pop will see.
1: So I've been talking to Jasmine Ward, we've been talking in the main about her latest novel Sing, Unburied Sing which is just out in paperback. And then we spoke about The Fire This Time, A New Generation Speaks About Race, a collection of essays which is edited by Jasmine. Both of the books are out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Jasmine, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with
2: me. Thank you for having me.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up. And the podcast is hosted by ACAST. Find us on iTunes. And if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism, and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?